Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Bill. Welcome back, Bill. <laughs> I think it's welcome back, Steve. It's nice to have you back. Yeah, it's really nice to be back in New York. It's kind of weird to actually have you here. Thanks. <laughs> so I might be a little rusty at this, so stop me if I get anything wrong. Don't worry, I will. All right. <clears throat> All right, guys, so put your headphones in and hold on to your butts, because we're about to take you into the field, in the woods, and on the trail. For every episode, we pick a natural history topic, research the science on that topic, go out into the field, and tell you everything we've learned. Well done. First try, you know, I got it done. <laughs> so Bill, do you want to tell everyone what the topic is today? Sure, so when you got back, we had talked a little bit about uh, doing oaks. You had an idea that didn't quite pan out. It's still my great hope to do an episode on the Quercus genius itself. So I, that, is, that is truly one of my goals. So Well, that may happen, but today, <laughs> The, my research led me to, to finding lots of papers on acorns, and I figured, hey, it's fall. It seems like a topic that is appropriate, and there really was so much to cover. Uh, it was tough to narrow it down, mm -hmm. but that is our topic for today. We are going to be talking about acorns. So we are at 18 Mile Creek Park in Hamburg, New York, and we recorded here once before. Yeah, we right? did. Just once? I think so. Just the one time. Mm -hmm. And just as we drove up, I was thinking, boy, I hope we picked a spot that has some oak trees and acorns. But there was one right by the parking lot. Oh yeah, not yeah. only that, but I've been looking down as we've been walking, and we are stepping on a lot of red oak leaves. Oh, there you go. Yeah, all over the ground. So we should be finding acorns no problem huh. on our walk today. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. All right, so, what'd you find? Well, I was just thinking, you know me, I always like to give a little bit of a background. Yeah. So, what is an oak? We could just say... <laughs> How much time <laughs> we have here? Just briefly, we could say, oaks, are in the Fagaceae, the beech family. Right. And actually there's a few close relatives that we all should be pretty familiar with. The chestnut is one, the beech is another in the same family. But the oaks are the biggest member of that family. They make up more than half of the entire family. A lot of species. 596 species. Oh, so wow. there's a lot of oaks. They really do make up the, the bulk of the family. And I'm not gonna really get into the different groups of oaks, because they really are, divided into five or six main groups because in the northeast around here we really only have two of the groups the red oaks and the white oaks right and there are some easy relatively easy ways to tell them apart i have a good one slightly racist oh holy cow okay uh so we're already doing this all right tell me uh, tell me this regrettable so i can't idea. take credit for it this was i don't think you want to take credit for this, this was shared with me by a fifth grader but it really works the red oaks or the members of the red oak group typically have pointed lobes on their leaves, right? Yep. And white oaks typically have rounded lobes on their leaves. Yes. So a student once pointed out, well, you can think of it as the red oaks, they have pointed lobes, like the pointy arrows of the Native Americans. <laughs> okay, yeah, and okay. the white oaks, like the white settlers, have rounded lobes, like the rounded bullet tips of White oaks. Oh, okay, okay. I mean, I, you know, whatever helps you remember things. So, you know, very often when people think of the red oak group, they think of pointy lobes and right. pointy, you know, pointy apex on the leaf, similar to what you think of Quercus rubra, like a red oak. Yeah, but that, to add the confusion, there is a red oak. There is a red oak within the red oak group. Right. And it doesn't have to be that way. The red oaks can also be entire, which means that they don't have teeth. And an example of that would be Quercus imbricaria. That's, I think it's called the shingle oak. That one is a, it doesn't look anything like an oak to me. It's not what I think of when I think of oak, but that is in the red oak group. Even though there's no lobes, 
It's just a, do you know what I'm, have you seen this species? Quercus mm -hmm. I have not, no. No, it's a really common species in Illinois and we would see it everywhere we went. It was constantly in our species list. So Steve just came back from Illinois. He had to get that in there. No, well, <laughs> well, it, it it was really interesting because the forest was totally different out there, and there were so many oaks. And around here, we think of beech, maple, hemlock. There, it's oak hickory. Sure. <laughs> it's totally different. And down in some areas of the southeast too, you're going to see a lot more. Yeah, oak yeah. But would you say that in the northeast, typically the members of the red oak that group that you're going to see do have pointed lobes. They do, but I just wanted to say that there are areas in the eastern U.S. where you're not going to get something that looks like a pointed lobe. But I should say the one thing that they all have, even Quercus imbricaria, is that bristle tip. The lobe has a little pointed tip on it. And even in Quercus imbricaria, right where the apex of the leaf is, there is a little bit of a bristle tip. And that's something that you're going to find in every red oak. Whereas in the white oaks, you, you can have lobes and, you know, sinuses of any size. And sometimes the white oaks are toothed, think of, you know, like a beech or like a chestnut, but oaks can be that way too, so it's a little confusing. They can also be like an undulating leaf. There's a lot of shapes that oaks can take on. Oh, yeah. Even like in Florida, um, we have the live oak. Those, so even though those are entire, those are actually white oaks. Right. <laughs> That's in the white oak group. I actually, when I was doing yeah. my research, you had initially asked to do research into, is there really a white oak and a red oak group? And I ended up in some tree discussion forum and there were pages and pages just about which group does live oak belong to? And there was all of this lively debate. You're crazy. It's a red oak. No, it, it's, it's kind in of, its own group. It's kind of funny because I'm pretty positive the groups are genetic. So uh, there, there are chemical characteristics yes. that do tell them apart. So it's not just, well, some you know, people it's just not like an, it's not just like a physical identification <laughs> thing. And maybe the science is less solid than I'm thinking on that. But for the, to the best of my knowledge, live oaks are white oaks. Yeah. So, so th that is the one important thing I thought would be good to remember is that red oaks have bristle tips. So whether it's Quercus palustris, the pin oak, or Quercus rubra, or Quercus volutna, you're always going to have those little needle-like tips at the end of the lobes and the apex of the leaf. Whereas in white oaks, you do not have that. They're nice and rounded off. Nothing is sticking out past the lobe. So, so that's a, a long way to get to saying Red oaks are usually pointy, white oaks are usually round. You're right, but very specifically in the literature, they do refer to it as bristle tips. So that's a good thing to take away as you're walking through the woods. You can look and you're like, hey, red oak group. Hey, white oak group. Red, white. Although you may see more red, I think. Oh. I think white oak, I didn't do much reading on this, but white oaks before colonization, they were much wider spread oh. than they are now. They're, they're actually having some slight troubles with recruitment compared to red oaks, but that's something that... I didn't read too deep into, but I think it is something. Did you do anything on that? No. Well, that's but, that's something we could talk about some other time, but um, but I just thought it might be important to note that from what I've read briefly, uh, white oaks are not as widespread as they used to be. Some of the things I mentioned could provide evidence, but I saw no direct links. Right. Okay. But while you're talking, I'm also thinking of other things. And I realized we didn't really describe where we are. Oh, I mean, we, we, we yeah. mentioned the, the name of the park, 18 Mile Creek Park, but... For those of you that haven't listened to every episode <laughs> and didn't listen to the one we did here, what does it look like, Steve? So we have a bit of a field on one side, yeah. and then we have a bit of a ravine on the other, although we did get a little bit further from, yeah. from the ravine. The, but, uh, the creek is the major feature here. There's about a 60-foot deep ravine here. It's a pretty good drop, too. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. a pretty steep one. And then on, on our left side, further from the creek, is uh, just a field of goldenrod. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, All at seed now. What's that? All in seed now. Oh yeah, it's yeah. all in seed. Yeah. Uh, we're pretty much surrounded by some buckthorn. So there's a lot of second growth forests, a lot of introduced species around here. Definitely not wild. 
No, not but too wild. We're really, we're on the edge of the suburbs here. Yeah. yeah. And we still do have some birds hanging around, but it's still relatively warm for mid-October. That's when we're here now, actually getting into late October. But I don't know if you heard just a second ago, a spring peeper was calling. Oh, yeah? Usually on October 23rd, you're usually not still hearing spring peepers, but... All right, the research, when I started doing it, I was really interested in finding out if something I had heard and something I had told people for many years, if it was true, this comes up a lot when we're doing research. Someone taught me once upon a time that there is as much nutrition in a pound of acorns as there is in a pound of ground beef. Oh. So what do you think I found? True, not true? I think it's not true. <laughs> it's not simple, there's not a simple answer, but they're actually, they're similar. Okay. Uh, there's a similar amount of nutrition. They are both high energy, high calorie foods. So I actually did look this up. And if you compared both of them calorie wise in a pound, there's 1100, about 1100 calories in beef, a pound of ground beef, 1700 calories, almost 1800 calories in acorns. Whoa. So more calories in acorns, more fat in acorns. Yeah. Um, and the fat in acorns is a little bit healthier. And then as far as carbs, zero carbs in a pound of ground beef, 192 grams of uh, carbohydrates in acorns. And then protein, much more protein in beef, 78 grams versus 27 grams in acorns. So acorns were and are a high energy food. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing that kind of stuck out to me, I got this information from the USDA, their website. Yeah. It just said nutrition information for acorns. <laughs> and there's so many kinds of right, oaks, right. as you said. I'm sure it's incredibly variable. I don't know if it was a mixture, all right. of one kind, but I suppose you could kind of say the same thing about ground beef. About ground beef, right? There's probably variety depending yeah. on, you know, where you're getting it from, what the animals were fed, what part of the animal it's from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I guess we can use this in a general sense, but right. you know, they're similar. That brings up the first study I found. It was for, from the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology, which I'm sure you didn't look into because obviously that's based on... Uh, <laughs> Anthropological <laughs> yes. things. Yeah. This was from 2013, and they looked at the historical record in California, and they found that natives storing acorns appears much earlier in the record even than storing fish, like salmon. Oh, okay. And you would think that, geez, salmon are such you know, high protein, relatively easy to catch, especially at certain times of year. Mm -hmm. Why would acorns appear first and they used a simple foraging model which that's how they referred to it when i went into the research <laughs> nothing it, simple <laughs> it didn't seem so simple to me but it ranked resources on their storage as well as their overall cost like how much nutrition are they getting out of it what does it take to store it what does it take to collect it and acorns actually won out as being more effective in terms of what you get back from it wow so, okay yeah, it was surprising yeah, so. uh, California is also sort of interesting because they have a third group of oaks oh. that uh, I was saying in the east we only have the red and the white groups. They have something called intermediate oaks. Oh, great. Totally different, yeah. Uh, the other ones are Asian species, and you'll, you'll find them in Indonesia as well, but the United States does have three groups of oaks. I just wanted to point it out because I didn't think we were going to go anywhere near California, but, but just to say the U.S. does have three types. For our, for our two listeners in California. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's for you. Yeah. So we should point out the differences in the acorns between the two groups, right? Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. Red oak acorns are not as palatable, to mammals especially, mm -hmm. including us. Yeah. Have you ever tried to re eat a red oak acorn? No, I did once. A friend of mine was collecting them, and she boiled them twice. Oh, okay. And do you want to say why people boil them? <laughs> <laughs> to remove the tannin. Yeah, and yeah. red oaks have a lot of tannins. Yeah, they're high in, in tannic acid. Yeah, and she even boiled them twice, 
and you know, it boiled them once, threw out the water, boiled them again, threw out the water, and they were still still very bitter. Not something I was going to eat. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I heard a great recipe for leaching the tannins from red oak acorns because Native Americans did used to harvest them in large quantities, um, even around here in the Northeast. Uh huh. And in modern times, probably the most interesting way of getting the tannins out because you can boil them, as you said. Mm -hmm. I've heard boil them in changes of water until it stops turning brown. Are you going to say putting them in a, in a flowing creek? No. Oh, I, I thought I've heard that somewhere. Uh, oh, was, yeah, people yeah. do that. But I was going to say you put them in a cheesecloth bag and you hang them in your toilet tank. And then every time the <laughs> toilet is flushed, in the toilet tank, not the bowl. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and every time you flush, the tannins are, are leached out because tannic acid is soluble in water. You know, as long as the, the toilet tank, that's clean water. Yeah, yeah. So I do have to say, though, I have never tried that officially. So. <laughs> I think we should go for it. I think. <laughs> that could be a, a bonus episode. Yeah, a bonus episode, yeah. trying toilet acorns. <laughs> <laughs> so what makes red oak acorns and, and the tannins within them so difficult to eat is it makes them incredibly bitter. But it does also allow those acorns to stay viable for much longer. White oak acorns, you can eat pretty much raw. I've had those, picked them up off the ground, shelled them. There is, you know, a little bit of tannin in there, depending on the individual tree, right. but much more palatable than white, white oak. Or yeah. much more palatable, excuse me, than red oak. So, as we mentioned, repeated boilings will leach out the tannic acid, and that will leave the tasty nut behind, rich in protein and fat. And as I mentioned, Native Americans did ground them into a meal, and they often made it into bread. So, wildlife does eat both of them. And a lot of research that I came across said that the acorn is the component of the oak that is most valuable to vertebrate wildlife. Uh, the list of birds that feed on them is very long. Yeah, actually, they in some of the publications that I've seen, they actually split the birds into three major groups, okay. just to help organize our thoughts on it. Yeah. So we have group number one, the destroyers. <laughs> <laughs> this will be like turkeys, ducks, pheasants, and pigeons. They pretty much just destroy the seed. They're just eating it. Okay. The second group are the above ground cachers. So this is like woodpeckers, titmice, and chickadees, nuthatches. They're storing them like in tree In trunks. trees. Yeah. Uh, I think chickadees will even put stuff just on branches. And if you're putting acorns up in a tree, they're not going to have a really easy time germinating. So uh, <laughs> so these first two groups, the destroyers and the above-ground cachers, they don't really help oaks disperse at all. Right. Some may effectively germinate, but it's going to be very few. They're so. not helping the oaks very much. Yeah. yeah, so there's the third group. And the third group are birds who routinely cache acorns in the soil. Those are scatter hoarders. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that term up. So this third group, it's, a, it's pretty much just jays, both American and European jays. Corvids. Oh, well, we, the jays are corvids. Right. But yeah, yeah, sure. But also crows and, and other right. members of that group. Yeah. Right. And there have been some recent studies that have shown that blue jays can move acorns anywhere from a tenth of a mile to almost two miles away. Yep. Did you read the same study? <laughs> Did you read? I, I need to ask because I will say, you know, normally when I do research, I do a, a Google Scholar search and then I'll print out like the three or four most promising looking papers and, okay. and read the physical copy. Yeah. I made it two studies in and then I got to this study by Pessendorfer. No. Okay, good. Because okay. this study, compared to what I read, it was fairly long. Yeah. But I didn't want to put it down. I was just finding so much good information in it. But most of the, the rest of the information I have revolves around scatter hoarders and their relationship with acorns and oaks. Well, so. why don't we go into it then? So before I get into that study too much, I just want to finish up 
talking about what other animals feed on acorns, but then also a little bit more about the differences between white oak acorns and red oak acorns. Yeah, for sure. So we, we rattled off some of the birds that feed on them. Uh, I do want to mention that grackles, in my reading, I found out that grackles actually have what's called a palatal keel. I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but it's like a ridge in their mouth oh. that allows them to cut acorn shells in their mouth just using direct pressure because most other birds Whoa. will have to peel them off and then eat the acorn, whereas grackles can pretty much put them in their mouth and almost shell them in their mouth. It's like, you know, when someone puts a cherry stem in their mouth and they can yeah, yeah. spit it out uh, in a knot. So grackles are the, the talented ones. That can... <laughs> and then as far as mammals go, black bears, raccoons, eastern chipmunks, white-footed mice, they seem to be more fond of white oak acorns. Mm -hmm. And then uh, deer have been regularly recorded scraping away at snow to get to acorns as well. Yeah. Um, those are just, you know, some of the animals that feed on them. But I'm going to be focusing mostly on the birds. Yeah, and just to jump off with the mammals, I don't have much more to say other than what you just said, but okay. one of the papers I was reading grouped the mammals into two groups. Oh, okay. They had small mammals that trap food locally, so whether they're caching it right near the tree, but um, either way, this is going to be like mice, voles, squirrels, gophers. And then there's the second group. These are the larger non-caching animals. These are going to be like deer, hare, wild boar, and bear. Yeah. Those guys don't really help with dispersal very much. <laughs> and as you'll see with... I don't uh, think deer cache food anymore. Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so rodents appear to be one of the most important seed predators. So that really reduces the amount of dispersal they can do if they're, right. you know, Just eating <laughs> if it. they're predators, yeah. Uh, but even still, mice typically, they're able to move acorns, you know, only tens of meters away uh, from the parent tree. Yeah. Whereas squirrels, they can move seeds up to 150 meters away, but typically it's less than 40 meters, at least with other nuts that squirrels deal with, such as like walnuts and whatnot. When it comes to dispersing acorns, I'll get into this more, but birds are, are the big driver there. Oh yeah. Because it yeah. seems like mammals, especially and, and other critters, they're dis if they are dispersing acorns, they're dispersing it very locally. Right. Yeah. Um, but I just brought up squirrels, and this is something I want to bring up that you said most of the rest of your research is about birds. Yeah. So I don't know, I don't know if you know this about squirrels, but they kind of do something interesting with acorns. Gray squirrels actually treat red and white acorns differently. Yes. Okay. I was going right. to mention that, but go for it. So I was about to say, this, this is, is written cool. word for word in my notes. Most notably, before caching white oak acorns, up to 70% will be excised. Right. Now, Bill, do you know what excision is? <laughs> that was a question that I was going to pose to you. <laughs> it's removing the embryo. Yeah, yeah. So uh, essentially, the squirrel basically just notches the apex of the of the acorn, yep. and it, it, it more or less kills the embryo. It, it either removes it or it kills the embryo before they cache it and the big question is why would they do this i know why yeah all right tell us bill <laughs> all right so uh, white oak acorns are typically consumed on the spot by animals because they germinate quickly they also germinate early right yeah so much faster white oak acorns typically will germinate within a, the season that they drop mm. whereas red oak acorns usually take uh, much longer yeah much longer yeah. so when something germinates it becomes hard to digest. Yeah, so it's no longer considered quote-unquote intact, right. at least with the paper that I was talking about, because an intact acorn is not one that has germinated. Right. <laughs> so we, you consider that in the group that you're not going to eat. It's not a successful cache for something you're going to eat later. Right, so we can, we can think of the white oak acorns. They're low in tannin, yeah. but then they don't keep as long. They germinate quickly. So they're fall germinating, and most animals are going to eat them right away. But squirrels, at least in some cases, will, as you said, 
excise them. And then they seemed to be able to store them at least a little bit longer. Oh yeah, the percentage of white acorns that were excised lasted significantly longer than the white acorns that weren't and the red acorns. They lasted longer than the red acorns? Both, yes. Wow. So um, the following spring, when they dug them up, they used a metal detector to find these marked acorns. Yep. And they found that the most intact acorns were the excised, quote unquote, white acorns. Yep. Another time you'll see squirrels excising acorns is when red acorns germinate. So sometimes they go back in dig up their cash, if they start germinating, they'll try to kill them right then and there. Really? Yeah, so it is something that happens to red acorns, just not very often. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so so just to wrap that up, yeah. squirrels are excising white acorns just to make them last longer. It maximizes long-term storage. What if a squirrel finds a red oak acorn, which can be stored, mm-hmm. what if it finds it infested with insects? Oh, I didn't read up on this. Yeah. It will eat it. Oh, good. Yeah. So why are you going to store it if it's infested? Typically, if they're going to eat acorns on the spot, it's fresh white oak acorns or red oak acorns that are infested. Okay, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. A little extra protein. If you want to store the white, you got to excise them, and the red you can just store. In fact, the fact that they lack some protein, that's uh, maybe the perfect answer for yeah. them. <laughs> <laughs> no. What do you mean? Which ones lack protein? Acorns in general, compared to steak. Oh, <laughs> compared to beef, yeah. Yeah, compared to beef, yeah. <laughs> I think compared to most things out here, they're pretty high. Yeah, it made sense in my head, but I realized <laughs> I did not. I had the whole beef thing in my head, but I didn't say it out loud. So. All right. All right, so can I get into my study now? Yeah. And I say study, but this was actually a review. Oh, uh, th- th- sometimes those are the best. Though. Yeah, yeah. So this came out in 2016 in the Condor, so an ornithological journal. Mm-hmm. And it was called Scatter Hoarding Corvids as seed dispersers for oaks and pines. And I saw that and I said, oh yeah, (laughs) that's just what I'm looking for. So Steve, do you know what zoochory is? Oh, well, mimiricory is when ants move seeds around. So zoochory must be when just animals in general. So I guess, yeah. So that's seed dispersal by animals. So what do you think endozoochory is? When it's attached to the outside of their bodies? Endo is? Oh, in, oh, exo. Well, that was embarrassing. All right, so (laughs) inside their body. They move seeds through the inside of their body. So that's ingestion and regurgitation or defecation. Mm -hmm. what we call the animal express. Then there's epizoochory, which you almost refer to as outside. So epi is like when burrs latch onto things. Your epidermis is your skin, the outside of your body. So then there's synzoochory, S-Y-N. Same? No, I don't know. I didn't quite... I didn't get, get yeah. a chance to look at what that is, but that's actively picking up seeds and depositing them elsewhere. Okay. So many of the corvid species, like the jays you mentioned, crows, ravens, and magpies, store seeds in the ground by pa- placing them in spatially distributed caches. And that's what's called scatter hoarding. And this food, especially during the winter, I was shocked to read that during hard winters, when mortality can be high and food is hard to find, 90% of their diet can come from these caches. Wow. Which... I mean, that's crazy. That's pretty much almost everything they're eating. That's why I was saying that if you're ever trying to survive somewhere during the winter, <laughs> just start looking for caches to dig up. Watch the jays. Watch. The... Yeah, you're digging up hibernating animals and dig- digging up squirrel caches. <laughs> <laughs> so the scatter hoarding, remember, they're not trying to plant things. They're trying to hide food for later or right. store food for later, I should say. And did you mention how far apart they usually scatter hoard? No, I did not. It's usually a few meters. Yeah. 
Like it, it's generally grouped in the same area, but it's not like shoving all the acorns you can into a hole. Right. It's like they every few out. meters they're spacing them out. Yeah. yeah. And just singly spacing them out. Yeah. And this, it turns into seed dispersal when seeds aren't recovered because obviously right. they're not going to find everything. In the northern temperate zone, there's lots of broadleaf trees and shrubs that use this strategy, that have evolved to use this strategy. So you mentioned some. So we'll just give, I'll give you a little quiz and vicariously our listeners can take it. So juglans, the genus. Juglans. Juglans. Oh, walnuts. Walnuts. Yeah. Okay. Caria. Uh, hickories. Caria, hickory. This one I didn't know. You may not know it. Corliss. Oh, um, don't, don't, don't tell me. Uh, hop horn bean? <laughs> well, I don't know if they're related. Horn bean? Hazelnuts. Oh, hey, sorry. Carpinus, Carpinus is ironwood and oh, now I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter. I got it wrong. All right. Yeah. Vagus. Oh, beaches, yeah. yeah, beaches, and then chestnuts. I didn't really, I didn't realize. Castanea. There's, there's two genera for that apparently. Asculus. Oh, that's buckeye. Okay, yeah. and then uh, Quercus obviously is who we're talking about. Oaks. The oaks. So all of these groups, all of these genera, rely almost chiefly, I think we could say, on scatter hoarders for large scale distribution. Because as we said, mammals and other critters will hoard seeds locally, very locally. But birds are really doing the long distance work. So this is a mutualistic relationship, right? Yep. But remember, these, these hoarders are both seed predators and dispersers. Mm-hmm. So plants have developed adaptations in their morphology, in their chemical defenses, and in their seed production patterns, because they're trying to maximize their benefit. So if you think about it, all of the trees we mentioned, they generally have large seeds. Yeah. And they contain high levels of carbohydrates, moderate levels of fats and proteins. And what that means is the animals are quickly filled. So if they're eating them, they get filled up quickly. And what that means is it increases the probability that the seeds are going to be stored and not just consumed. So they fill up quickly and then they're like, well, I got all these seeds. I got to do something with them. And then similarly, most of the trees we mentioned, the nuts are not easy to get to. Oh, right. Right? It takes a lot of work to get them out. That also will encourage hoarding because if you're sitting there for a long time trying to open this nut, Mm -hmm. you're exposed to predators. And then everybody competing with you is also going to be gathering nuts as well. So you're better off if you gather as much as you can and take it away and put it somewhere where only you potentially know where it is. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And once in the ground, seeds are almost odorless and they're often hard to find. Now, I didn't look into this, but I have heard in the past that some studies have been done. And do you know the chief way that at least squirrels locate their previous caches? They don't mark them like dogs do, do they? The study that I heard about, and I should say I didn't find this for sure. But right, and I didn't using... read anything about <laughs> P- marking with P or anything. They're I just made it up right now. Yeah. the odor of their saliva. Oh. So they yeah. know what their spit smells like, apparently. Uh, okay. They recognize it. We can also talk about tannins, and many seeds have these protective chemicals, these tannins that we already mentioned. It makes things difficult to digest, but it does allow the seeds to be stored for an extended period of time. Now, I didn't ever relate this term to acorns, but have you heard acorns are recalcitrant? No, I don't know the term. When I think of the word recalcitrant, it just means, you know, someone who's, you know, not agreeable, not willing to go along with things. Okay, okay. Uh, but I had to look it up. In, in botanical terms, apparently it means seeds that don't survive drying and freezing. Oh. So you've never heard it used in this way? No, All no, right. no, no. Maybe this particular researcher is coming up with his own definition, but I did see other evidence of the term being used in that way. Right. So typically acorns, um, they don't remain viable in the seed bank often for more than a year. And this, this whole suite of adaptations, it quite likely evolved 
in response to seed dispersal by these scatter hoarders, these birds. Right, okay. and, and one of the greatest things about jays is that where some of the other species just leave them exposed to the elements, yeah. jays will actually cover them yeah. with a light coating of dirt and actually covering it with debris and soil helps with germination, right. rooting, They're planting them. early growth, <laughs> and it may help with desiccation. So less, you know, it's gonna dry out less. Yeah, we gotta point out that, again, that birds and we're going to be talking mostly about corvids. They're not hiding seeds with the intention of cultivating seedlings. <laughs> you mean they're not farmers? <laughs> they're not. But they've just evolved this. And what they've evolved is what's called directed dispersal. They're not just putting them in the ground in a way that is conducive to germination. They're putting them in places that are conducive to germination. Oh, you're talking about putting them in open areas where they have yes. access to sunlight and where right. trees aren't already. <laughs> so they hide them in transition zones and disturbed areas under other plants. Oh, um, yeah. They're hiding them in places that's conducive to an oak growing. Right. And they're, so as far as we, they're not doing this on purpose. They're colonists. Like these are species that are going to form a forest eventually. So yeah. they've just evolved these behaviors. I don't know if birds that did this in the past, these behaviors were selected for. Yeah. One of the papers that I read talked about oaks and corvids potentially having this beneficial relationship yeah. with each other where, you know, the oak will provide some food and the bird provides a vehicle to, to further colonization yeah. somewhere else. So there was one study with holly oak acorns and people planted them below shrubs just to mimic how jays do it. And then others were planted just in the open or under artificial shade. And after eight months, 50% of the first group survived and was growing. But in those other places, less than 16% of the other groups did. Oh, so wow. So that's a significant difference. And that yeah. was just people kind of mimicking what the jays do, yeah. not the jays actually doing it. It's crazy yeah. how adapted these two two groups are to help each other out. So what I was saying earlier about, so I have not done the deep research on on white oaks not doing as well as they did pre-colonization. Okay. But one of the things that I read was that corvids, they do discriminate. So when they're carrying acorns, they tend to carry small to medium sized acorns. Yes. So um, you can think of a couple examples of that being, uh, so two members of our red acorn group, Quercus volutina, that is a smallish acorn. Also Quercus palustris, uh, the pin oak. That one also has some smaller medium-sized acorns. Yep. Whereas species like Quercus alba, which has larger acorns, yep. those are ignored. <laughs> so and, and In I, the presence I, of those others. And the thing is, I'm I'm talking without having solid scientific knowledge on this on this subject but i keep seeing a pattern and whether it's a pattern that's not there or is there but again it's like the whites being ignored yeah. the reds doing pretty decent it's funny you should mention that yeah okay because let's jump into it <laughs> they talk about there's a whole section in this paper about seed selectivity okay so size and chemical makeup of the different oaks of the different acorns does affect corvid preference mm -hmm. they did a study and they said blue jays removed the seeds from small acorned oaks, like the pin oak, the black oak, and even beeches, while ignoring nearby white oaks and northern red oaks that hmm. were carrying large acorns. So they seemed to prefer the smaller the better. Yeah. Researchers speculated that the large diameter of the red oaks in the early germination of the white oaks may be what deterred them. And then there was another 1991 study that found a similar pattern, and then other studies showed a similar preference just for willow and pin oaks. And those preferred acorns usually contained higher tannin. So they were mm. thinking, oh, they like smaller acorns with higher tannin. But then subsequent research showed that, well, if you take away the larger acorns 
and you just offer smaller acorns, they go for the ones with the lower tannin content. Okay. Okay. Yes. If the acorns available are similarly sized. So when multiple species of oaks are present, they like smaller acorns with lower tannin, but they'll take what they can get. Yeah, it makes sense. It's just a natural niche filling. So yeah. just in their natural conditions, they're going to go, Just it just happens that they go with the ones with the higher tannins, yeah. but as soon as you put them into a more artificial environment, they go for the thing they like the most. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and on top of that, corvids typically will not take and cache acorns that are infested with weevils. So weevils are the, the insect that infests the most. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not gonna try to, well, I guess I'll try. How would you say oh, that? Oh, day. I That was one of the biggest groups that I was working with this summer. So. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so that is the largest group that infests acorns. So the corvids, they won't choose those unless that's absolutely all that's available. So again, if you're trying to pick an organism that's the best disperser, you don't want an organism that's gonna take an infested acorn and plant it somewhere else because that's not gonna help the tree. Mm -hmm. So just to talk a little bit about other species, other dispersers don't seem to be so choosy. Gray squirrels, we said they'll readily eat and disperse acorns infested. Seed dispersing rodents, they exhibited a weak preference for healthy acorns with weevil damage or weevils inside. So they almost seemed to prefer them, but it was, it was weak. Yeah. And some squirrels also prevented germination of acorns by removing the embryo before caching them. Because right. when they do excise it, then they're it's never going to germinate. They're not a seed disperser anymore. Yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> in that instance, they're a seed predator. Right, right. So rodents do play an important role in, in the dispersal within communities, but when it comes to spreading them outside immediate communities, it's the corvids that's the biggest, seem to be the most successful and biggest group. Right, and, and the corvids kind of solved the problem of a, a pattern that they were seeing, because they were like, okay, well, oaks have very large seeds, so we would imagine that the seeds don't move very far, mm -hmm. but then th there was kind of like this strange thing where they're like, okay, we're seeing oaks moving at about 300 meters a year like we're seeing these high rates of movement new trees being established and just kind of moving faster than expected so it had to be animals and then they looked at the mammals that didn't answer it they looked at the corvids and like ah that's it that's that's what we're looking for so it's kind of fun when you uh when when you look at this like a detective or something sure, so. yeah. and when when it comes to how many they move so i tried to find some actual numbers right mm -hmm. apparently jays can carry as many as three acorns at a time obviously depending on the species and the size but they have been recorded caching as many, one bird caching as many as 5,000 acorns in a year. Oh boy. And they often recover fewer than half. Yeah. So 2,500 trees planted essentially. And then another study found in a single season, there was a stand of 11 pin oaks mm -hmm. and the local blue jays collectively transported over 130,000 seeds. Wow. So just from this stand of 11 oaks, Jeez. right? <laughs> so this connects to research if you're looking into deep history, mm -hmm. because North American oaks and beaches, after the last glacial maximum, they experienced rapid northern range expansion. So oh. as the, the glaciers retreated to the north, the oaks and the beaches, they followed them pretty rapidly. Yeah, and yeah. Oaks and beaches, they don't get up and walk. So <laughs> right. it's thought that corvids were the major driver behind that range expansion. Yeah. And if we're thinking about climate change and how things are going to change rapidly, ranges are going to have to move north. Mm -hmm. Oaks and beaches, they're going to need these corvids around to help them move to better habitat. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, kind of makes you feel bad for some of the ones that are just strictly wind pollinated, like the maples. Yeah. Right. Like the maples in the ashes. Yeah. <laughs> 
I feel but, bad for him. I mean, the wind's going to blow no matter what, but they're probably not going to be able to move as quickly. Right, yeah. Yeah, and as far. Right. So I think now is a good time to talk about masting, unless you have something else. One thing that I want to get into before we talk about masting, because this is tied in with masting, um, and I'm only going to touch on it very briefly, but you know, this is an oak and acorn episode, and I didn't want to ignore some of the things we've talked about with acorns in previous episodes. So if you guys haven't seen the episode with Wayne, Dr. Wayne Gall, entomologist friend who was on our most recent episode, he talked about a really interesting relationship between acorns and Lyme disease. Oh, yes. And this it, is required. Yeah, and, and this really does tie in a, a bit to a bit to the topic today. So just in a couple sentences, I'm just going to try to summarize what he said. But really, truly, that episode is a very good episode, and, and I highly recommend you check out Wayne talking about it. Wayne really runs the whole episode. I'm just there to every hold now the and then ask a question and hold the mic. Yeah. And say, uh-huh. So, uh, so he was he was referring to uh, a few papers published by a man named Ostfeld. Yes. I ended up ignoring his original paper because I noticed he had many other papers <laughs> on very similar topics. So I found one from 2006 that uh, focused on a 13-year study that he did. And what was what he's doing... What he was doing was looking at um, the density and Borrelia burgdorferi infection prevalence in nymphal Ixodes scapularis ticks. Bill, do you want to quickly translate what I just said? That's Lyme disease. <laughs> yes, it's the bacteria that causes Lyme disease in black-legged ticks. Yes. They were just looking at the prevalence of that, and they were using it to determine what the current year's risk of getting Lyme disease was. So they ran a bunch of models, and they found that deer abundance had no predictive power on Lyme disease, which is something that a lot of people don't expect. Additionally, precipitation in the current year and temperature in the prior year had only weak effects on Lyme disease risk. Now, what was the strongest predictor for the current year's risk, what they actually found was the prior year's abundance of white-footed mice, which is where ticks get the bacteria for Lyme disease in the first place, also Eastern chipmunks as well, oh, okay. and the abundance of acorns two years previously sure so white-footed mice and chipmunks from the previous year and acorns from two years before because if there's a high acorn what do you want to call it high acorn, if there's yeah if there's a high <laughs> acorn mast then you're going to get mice and chipmunks doing very well and the next year they're going to have a lot more offspring yep yeah. and then a lot more offspring means a lot more things for the ticks to feed on so not only will the black-legged tick number increase but the number of them that will be feeding on white-footed mice and picking up the bacteria will also increase as well. So it's just a, it's, it's kind of like a weird three-year cycle. It's I like have... acorns, mice and chipmunks, Lyme, Lyme disease. disease. <laughs> and I found something to add to that. Yeah. That when you get a year with lots of acorns, and then the following year, you also get a lot of mice, you'll also have a drop in gypsy moth. I had that paper and I didn't read it. I was yeah. like, no, I can't go into it. I can't go into it. Because they feed yeah. heavily on gypsy moth larvae. Oh, great. So yeah. they do help when there's a lot of mice. They do help control gypsy moth outbreaks. Yeah. But then they're also increasing the likelihood of Lyme disease. All right. So are we ready to talk about masting in particular? Well, I think this is a good transition, a yeah. good segue into masting. So when we say masting, we probably should have defined our term earlier yeah. on for people who Just don't know. The production of seed. But a lot an, of seed. An abnormal production <laughs> yeah. of seed. And it's not just a single tree that's going to do it. It happens in geographic areas. So all of the trees, or, or I mm -hmm. should say many of the trees in an area, for whatever reason, produce way more acorns or walnuts or whatever your given nut is mm -hmm. than usual. So white oak trees seem to do it every four to ten years. Okay. 
I could not find a range for red oaks. There was an article I read that said two to five years, but they had no source. It wasn't tied to any kind of studies or anything like that. Right. One of the papers that I was looking at was talking about the differences in red oak and white oak mast years. And they made a few claims. And then to kind of show that those claims weren't always true, (laughs) they were like, yeah, but then it wasn't found in this study. And then it was It's like, oh, red oaks actually are a little bit more consistently producing mast (laughs) years. Actually, they're not. So it was such a hard topic to get into with these mast years numbers. I think that's a topic all in its own. Yeah. So it can be called bumper crops. Mm-hmm. People are saying that that can, that can refer to a mast year. And the main paper that I'm using here, it did say that it's connected in some way to environmental factors. But I actually came across two separate articles, non-academic articles, that oh. were emphatic that it's not tied to environmental factors. Well, yeah. but, but again... The, the those... dumber you are, the sure you are. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> you can write any articles you want, guys. Just link, to your, link your sources. I don't trust any article that doesn't link their sources. Well, right. Yeah. It, it, gives, it lends you credibility, right? Right. I loved the line here. It said, Masting leads to strong temporal pulses in resources, which reverberate through the whole ecosystem. Oh, boy. Yeah. Maybe it gets in line with your vibrational energy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it reverberates through you. So seed dispersers, like what we've been talking about, but even just seed predators, insects, rodents, birds, all of them respond by just having lots of offspring. Makes following. sense. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, food is just hugely abundant. The effect on scatter hoarders, though, is not really well understood. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting to talk about, so why does this happen? Why do these trees have mast years? Why don't they just have similar oh, you know, production all year? Right. So I came across two hypotheses. So one is the predator satiation. Uh, <laughs> I knew I was going to have a time saying that. The predator satiation hypothesis. And this proposes that there's so many seed predators out there that are constantly consuming acorns that it just makes sense that you should have a bumper crop year every once in a while and just flood the market with right. your seeds because there's no way the seed predators in the area are going to be able to consume that many. They're going to miss some for yeah. sure. And then after they all reproduce a bunch, we're not doing a mass year next year, buddy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then there's also the predator dispersal hypothesis, which says the first hypothesis is probably true, but in addition, these mast years, they improve the benefits they're getting from the dispersers because it's been documented that during these years, dispersal rates increase. So the amount of seeds they're, they're carrying out, the distances increase. And we're talking about the scatter hoarders, the birds here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then also they're selecting higher quality seeds because there's more seeds to choose from. Right. Now, I should say that the first one, the satiation hypothesis, that is the one that is backed up by more research. Okay. The second one, not so much, but they both sound good to me. Well, yeah, because there's only a certain number of animals and there's only a certain amount of food out there. And even with the birds, I think the corvids, I think in the paper I read, they said they only take at the tree, at the parent tree itself, they probably eat 20% of the acorns there. Yeah. That's not the acorns that they, they take with them. And cash. And cash, yeah. And, so and plant. Right, and, yeah. and so if you imagine that there's a year where there's many, many more acorns, it's, it's got to be a lower than 20% that they're eating, you know, because the more there are, the lower the percentage sure. is going to be. Yeah, so definitely. All right. There's just one more section of the paper that I wanted to talk about. Okay. And that was really what they referred to as ecosystem engineering. Oh, interesting. So they went through okay. all these other things, and they kind of want to take a step back and look at how important oaks and their seed dispersers, their scatter hoarders are to ecosystems, but also how we can use this 
in terms of land restoration. Okay. okay. So they talked about that in many areas, like southern areas here in the States, you could really consider oaks as a keystone hardwood species. You know, it makes up a large percentage of some forest types. Right. Okay? In, in our part of New York, it makes up less than 10% right. of our forests. So right. That, so yeah. that's why I said, you know, gee, I wonder if this site is going to have a lot of oaks. Yeah. Because when you, we go on hikes around here, you, you're not guaranteed you're going to see an oak. Mm -hmm. And usually, usually you don't see them in abundance. But oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. Well, th that was a big uh, culture shock for me, <laughs> a bot botanical culture shock yeah. for me when I went to Illinois, because most of that state, I think it's like eighty percent or so of their forests are oaks. <laughs> are oak hickories, yeah. <laughs> so just get to know your oaks and your hickories there, and you'll be good. Oh, I had to learn them. <laughs> so in these areas, you know, oaks are major drivers of, of biodiversity, and they affect things not just on a biotic level but on an abiotic level. They talked about how oaks can create fertility islands through nutrient cycling. They change concentrations of carbon, of nitrogen. And they even mentioned how in coastal California, tall vegetation like oaks capture moisture from fog, and this produces an important water input into those particular ecosystems. Oh, yeah, yeah. So if these trees are so important to these areas, the birds that spread their seeds, it means the impacts of birds as a dispersal vector can affect the dynamics of the whole ecosystem. Wow. And, and I don't think that's overstating the case too much, do you? Well, it's hard to say whether or not it's overstating because you have to know the relationships that the other trees are having. But just just based on the research that I did for this episode, it does yeah. seem like oaks have a big effect on the wildlife around them. So I could see, like, I don't I don't hear people talking about Quercus as being a keystone, you know, or, you know, a, yeah. a, you don't hear that. You that know? kind of jumped out at me. Yeah. Like, hmm, I don't know if I agree with that. I've heard it with hemlock. Which kind of which kind of took me by surprise, and I would love to do an episode on that. But after doing this research, I could kind of see it. But anytime you're digging into anything so intensive, <laughs> you know, intensely, you get you're like, ooh, this is the number one thing. You and see how important everyone's got to right? think yeah. about. Yeah, <laughs> happens every single episode. I swear. It seems to, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So we're going to talk about blue jays in our area. They are really the dominant disperser of acorns. Mm -hmm. We just mentioned that acorns, or I'm sorry, oaks aren't too dominant in our forests around here, but the farther south you get, and in certain areas, there, mm -hmm. there are gonna be more oaks. So I mentioned before how in that one area with pin oaks, yeah. how the local blue jays collectively transported 130,000 yeah. acres. <laughs> the crazy part, the stat that I left out of that, people actually checked in to those caches. 91% of the caches were placed in areas suitable for germination. Wow. <laughs> so almost all of them. You have to imagine it's done purposefully. <laughs> you have to think. We so want yeah. to think that, yeah. but definitely not. <laughs> oh, definitely not? <laughs> well, I can't say definitely not. I say purposefully, like, I'm not saying they're doing it because they think it's going to grow there. Right. I'm, do I'm saying evolutionarily, it's good that they forget about a few. <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> I would say it's vital to the, the life history of the oaks oh, yeah. in many areas in North America. Right. But let's talk about habitat restoration. So land managers, they've identified the use of corvids as seed dispersers. It's actually been going on for a really long time. Even well, like 100 years, 150 years, yeah. 200 so in, years? Yeah, so in 1889, oh, okay. wow. there was one forester who wrote that it's unnecessary to seed oaks because the, the jays do it for people in abundance. Wow. And even as far back as 1653, there, was, there were people recording hoarding activity. Mm -hmm. So people have known about this for a long time. So by manipulating these birds into providing seed dispersal in targeted areas, or by creating conditions 
where the seeds can contribute to regeneration, people could utilize the bird's behavior to achieve conservation goals. I mean, to me, that was just a crazy thing. Oh, we can have these birds do the work for us. It's a conservation hack, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it says in one East German forest, a study estimated that jays were responsible for two to 4,000 young oaks per hectare. So about the size oh. of, of soccer field. Yeah. Right? Okay. So two to 4,000 per hectare. And a Swedish study actually looked at what if we replaced the efforts of jays with human labor? It would cost over $9,000 per hectare annually. Wow. So they're saving people money. Yeah. <laughs> a fraction of the replacement cost could be invested in just creating or maintaining jay habitat. If you do that, they're going to do the work for you. It's funny, you don't, but I wonder how important that is because I see jays and crows everywhere. Uh, and it depends because a lot of these studies were referring to areas in Europe. Like oh, they said, right, right. In Spain, managers tasked with oak habitat restoration, mm -hmm. all they would do is they would go to these areas and plant a seed source tree. They would plant right. like one tree and then say, okay, jays, go for it. Yeah, I don't remember if it was Leopold do or Abbey, do. but one of them was talking about the German forests as if they were dead and lifeless, at least compared to American forests back in the Because they 19... were so heavily managed. Yeah, back in like 1900 or whatever right. it was. Yeah. yeah. But the, the flip side of that and kind of the sad part of that is in areas of Europe, I, I haven't heard so much of it here, but in areas of Europe, jays are, and other corvids are often shot Oh. because it's believed that they just consume seeds mm -hmm. and that they prey on other organisms like especially other birds well you know it's called a scare crow not a scare pigeon you know what i'm saying like there's a reason that that has that name so a lot of people want the crows away it's so, true yeah but studies have shown that those behaviors those effects are minute oh really especially when considered in relation to the benefits that they give okay so don't go out there shooting jays and I do <laughs> all right I'll, to... I'll stop shooting them fine uh, you I convinced me I do have to, to share a story here that happened recently, not about corvids. Okay. It's kind of off topic, but I feel it's appropriate. Story I, time. Yeah. I had a, a coworker come to me and say, you know, she knows I'm into plants and animals and all that weird stuff. Yeah, all that weird stuff. Yeah. And she said, you know, I'm wondering if you can help me out because we have a nice patch of woods behind our house that our neighbors own. And there's turkey vultures that roost there. Mm -hmm. And she said, my neighbor came over the other day and he said he was thinking of cutting down the trees. <gasps> and she said, why? He said, well, you know, the turkey vultures are up there. And she, she said, okay. She said, but, you know, does that bother you? They're yeah, not like, noisy. And, and then? <laughs> He's like, yeah, but, you know, vultures, they're just evil. What? <laughs> exactly. Oh, no. <laughs> so she's like, what can I do about this? I said, well, with that attitude, I'm not sure exactly what you can do. Yeah. How to argue that. So yes. I did. I looked online for several articles about why turkey vultures are awesome. <laughs> and I printed those out yeah, yeah. and gave them to her in the hopes that... Oh, like, geez. But I couldn't believe that that kind of attitude... Magical thinking. You can yes. say it. <laughs> you can say the whole good, evil, magical vultures thinking thing. Vultures are yeah. evil. It's weird. That's a weird way to look at the world, yeah. Yeah, so I guess it's not surprising that people are shooting jays. Yeah, I guess. You know, if I mean, people think of jays as being like mischievous and, yeah. and, and tricky and stuff like that. They're like the foxes of the, bro the bird world. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, believe it or not, that's all I had. You know what? We're going long. I think that this is a good place to stop it. You know? All right. So we hope you guys enjoyed the episode. First and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of supporters on Patreon. A special thanks to our top patrons, Alyssa, Rob, Molly. We named the dog Indy, Bethany, Matt, and especially Scott, Ken, and Diane. You guys really make the podcast happen.
We also want to thank the Urban Wildlife Podcast for giving us another shout-out on one of their most recent episodes. The episode's Things That Go Flap in the Night, Nighthawks and Bats at the Cemetery. During the episode, they say, we're going to do this episode field note style, but I have to assume that they're talking about us because in the episode description, they write... In this special mini episode, we take a page from the field guides and it links to our website. So right. they must have got it wrong when they were saying it, but at least they got it right for when they're writing it. So we'll definitely them. Ch check out the episode. I listened to it. It was actually pretty cool. They right. do it just like us with very little editing, but uh, it's still a good episode. It's still fun. Nice to hear the cemetery at night. And what's the name of that podcast? It's called the Urban Wildlife Podcast. They okay. gi they've given us one other shout out before. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. So thanks to you guys. And, and uh, a link to that mini episode will definitely be in our episode description as well. So lastly, we'd like to thank our new reviewers. So from Stitcher, thank Bibim. Thank you, Bibim. <laughs> thank uh, We Named the Dog Indy. And also thank MK710. And from iTunes, man, we have a lot of thanking to do, but from <laughs> iTunes, uh, thank you Starverse, Kiki Browser, Hail123456, uh, Bison Happenstance, JD, Aug3, and Ken the Bird. Keep those reviews coming, guys. And we've officially hit 25 written reviews. All right. So Bill and I are going to have to decide what we're going to do, and we'll let you know by the next episode what we're going to do. We're going to be doing something special. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but for starters, you can definitely check out our uh, About Us page on the website. It's been up for like six months. Have you seen it? I think Have you so. seen it? Are you sure you've seen it? I Maybe not, because it's not ringing a bell. Oh, <laughs> don't look at it till after this episode goes up. It's been up for about five, six months. <laughs> okay. Is that the one with the picture of me in the bear suit? Nope. Let's, okay. just, let's just say that I have an accurate one, and yours is <laughs> Mr. Bill. Oh, <laughs> yes, I did see that. Yeah, <laughs> so d definitely check that out. I've, I've been uh, forgetting to tell you guys about it this whole time. But we also want to announce, this is something we'll touch on next episode as well, but we've officially made enough money to donate to Kiva. Great. And I don't have it on me right now, but next episode we'll tell you guys exactly who we donate to. And as Patreon money keeps coming in, we're going to keep donating to Kiva and, and keep helping people doing environmental projects in developing countries. So Yeah, so those of you who don't know, once we reach a certain threshold of donations, then we can donate money to Kiva. Yep. So if you guys have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. And thank you to those people that did make suggestions. Oh, yeah. We were just talking before we started recording today that our next episode will be a topic that was generated by one of you out there. So a thank listener, you for that. A listener suggestion. Yep. Yeah. All right. You can also follow and like us on Facebook. You can check us out on Twitter at Field Guides Pod. Our Instagram handle is Field Guides Podcast. And you can also visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash thefieldguides. But if you're like me and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there's other ways you can help out. You can share this episode with your friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us get the word out to more people. All right, well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Thanks for listening, folks. Take care. Man, acorns are nuts. Oh, <laughs> you had to. Oh, that was bad. <laughs>